I invite you to turn in your, your worship folders to the front. We're going we're gonna to be looking at Proverbs chapter uh, 4 today. <clears throat> we're doing our series on, uh, on wisdom. And uh, we're just going to read that first paragraph out loud together. I like it when you read scripture out loud with me. We're going to read that first paragraph together. We're going to look at the whole of Proverbs 4, but we're just going to read this first paragraph paragraph together. Will you read God's word together? Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. We've been trying to define wisdom from God's perspective as it's presented particularly here in the book of Proverbs. And the one that I have liked the best is this idea that wisdom is the competence that comes from God's word and the work of his spirit in your life so that you can navigate life's realities successfully. The idea of being able to navigate life's realities successfully is found in the last thing that we read when it talks about a graceful garland or a beautiful crown. This is the victor's crown. This is having run the race you have won. You have successfully done so. And so... We are grounding the whole idea of godly wisdom, biblical wisdom, in this fact that you must be in touch with reality. That if you are not in touch with reality, you are trying to bend reality to your fantasy. And you will never navigate reality by fantasy. You can only win the victor's crown. You can only have the garland of the victor on your head if you have actually navigated successfully reality. Another way to look at this, as throughout the scriptures, is wisdom in your life can only truly begin when you accept God's offer in grace in Jesus Christ. Listen what I mean by this. Until you come to the place that you realize not only do you need wisdom and are desperate for wisdom, but that wisdom is not something you're going to you're going to merit, you're going to deserve, but it's something that you receive, that is available to you, that is waiting for you, that the one who is keeping you from wisdom is you. As a matter of fact, many of us are far too smart to be wise. Some of us are too powerful to be wise. And some of us are too rich. No, none of us here. At least not by the offerings I've seen. Just seeing if you're awake. 
You see, you only pursue grace when you know you're poor. You only pursue grace when you know you're not powerful. You only pursue grace when you know you're over your head. Because until that point, you keep trying to earn it. You keep trying to merit it. You keep trying to deserve it. See, Jesus on the cross was treated the way you deserve so that now you can be treated the way he deserves. Jesus on the cross was treated the way you deserve. The wages of sin is death. But now, because of that, you can be treated the way that Jesus deserves. But you only do that as you begin to accept by faith the wisdom of God. Now, one of the, one of the writers on this, on this chapter that I like very much said, this chapter reflects that gaining wisdom, real ri- wisdom, that competence to navigate life's struggles, that gaining wisdom is a glorious battle. If you look at all the words that we read, these are, these are intense words. Get wisdom. Get insight. The wording there is pursuit. It's sacrificing to get something. As a matter of fact, it's probably the way that a man wins a woman's heart. My wife likes to tell the story that when I fell in love with her, I put on a full court press. That I went after her. She lived in Kentucky. I lived in Mississippi. Every single weekend I could be there, I was in Kentucky. And I stayed until the last minute so that I could drive back to Mississippi and make my Greek class on a Monday morning. And she said, I overwhelmed her with focused attention. And then we got married. And she went, where'd that go? She has forgiven me, I think. But the, the picture here is something that you want so badly, that you treasure so much, that is so precious to you, that you will forego all other things in order to get it. See, until you, until you know that it's that precious and that it's that good, you'll keep doing stupid things. As a matter of fact, the interesting thing is that you can know something is stupid and keep doing it. You have to know something is better waiting for you. See, one of the keys here is a lot about understanding your own temperament, understanding your own way of in a default setting or a natural way that you deal with reality. I'll give you again three ways that we're wired. All right, some of you. When the threat comes, you retreat. We're not going to have a show of hands. Some of you retreat. Some of you, when a threat comes, you attack. And some of you, when a threat comes, you say, let's just, let's just stand firm. Can't be as bad as it seems. And so there's the active way, there's a retreating way, and there's a passive way. Now, there are times when any one of those are an excellent way to deal with a threat. But normally, you pick the wrong one. For example, my default setting is attack. I love to attack things. And so my wife's setting is not to attack. 
So she's having tr- she was having trouble with the kids, and she says, you come deal with them. Well, before a few minutes, I got Anna crying, Joseph hardened in the heart, my son. She's like, that was not what I meant for you to do. Any father relate to me right now? I'm like, you called in the big gun. You expect me not to fire it? Come on. But then you begin to realize something if you get wise is your natural default setting doesn't work in every situation. As a matter of fact, it hardly ever works if you notice. And so wisdom comes in and says, what's the right setting for the right situation? I don't, I'm not married to my natural default. I'm married to my wisdom in Christ. But it's not easy to get there. That's why it's a glorious battle. Because wisdom is battling with you to accept wisdom. I was once in a, uh, on an executive board of a, a faith uh, organization. And the chairman of the board said, I'm going to have every board member go through some some psychological profile testing type stuff. And so he had the entire group of us go through this profile thing. I found it very helpful. It was about 20 of us or so. And in that group of 20, there were people who retreated, people who attacked, and people who stood pat. And it was, it was fascinating to see who was who and, and, and the different roles that they played. Well, we were going around the circle, and we are all telling our, our default settings. And we get to this one guy... And he goes, I will not take this test. Guess which one his default setting is. I'd say uh, not standing pat, right? And so then he goes, and this is what he said. I know exactly how to respond in every situation. I know how to adapt to every person. And everything I do and say is always appropriate. And he didn't even think that was a bad thing to say. He's a fool. He's wise in his own eyes. But he thinks that his foolishness is wisdom. That's why it's a glorious battle. It's because when you are a fool, you portray it as if you are wise. And so Proverbs 4 is saying, whatever you do, get wisdom. Get wisdom. Listen to what Jesus says. Spurgeon put it this way. I love this little quote from Spurgeon. He says, come unto me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. You say, Lord, I cannot give you anything because we're used to negotiating. Lord, I cannot give you anything. He does not want anything. Come to Jesus, and he says, I will give you, not what you give to God, but what he gives to you will be your salvation. I will give you. That is the gospel in four words. Will you come and have it? It lies open before you. Some of you are like me. You heard very negative things when you were a kid. My father's favorite joke, do I pay you to be good? No, dad, then you're good for nothing. 
Some of you, when you made mistakes, heard how stupid you were. You heard how you never amount to anything. And so there are some of you, whether you know it or not, you're trying to prove to a voice in your head that you have value. You're trying to prove to somebody that you're not stupid, that you're not wicked, that you're not evil, that you're not worthless. That voice is not the voice of wisdom, friends. It's the voice of your accuser. And there comes a time when you have to say, Jesus says, I come just as I am. And he makes me wise. And he gives me worth. And he gives me a future that no one can cut off. No one else has ever said to me, I set before you an open door that none can close. Only Jesus can say that. And so it's not merely getting smarter, stronger, wealthier. It's about coming broken. And saying, that rest that you offer Jesus sounds really good. A rest from trying to prove something. A rest from trying to be somebody. A rest from trying to have things that matter. And just letting him take hold of you. You don't have to bring anything. You don't have anything to bring. But he has everything to give. So... As we look at this passage, we begin to, begin to ask this question. Okay, so how do I get going in wisdom? In, in those verses that we read a minute ago, one of the key verses is this one, when it says, when I was a son with my father, tender. I'm not sure he was in middle school at that point. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. One of the hardest things between you and wisdom is rebellion. It is the thought that begins when you're a toddler that says, I will do it myself. No one else knows but me what is best for me. And there comes, there comes a time in your quest for wisdom and, and, and to begin to change your life that you begin to say, I don't know what's best for me. Could you practice that with me right now? Would you mind saying that with me? I do not know what is best for me. Now you know what you feel. You know what sometimes what you want. Well, sometimes. And you know a lot of things, but you don't know the future. And the truth is that you don't really know what your limitations are. You know what your comfort level is, but you don't know what your limitations are. And so it's only when you begin to say something bigger than me, something smarter than me, something with more knowledge than me must be what I hold on to for the rest of my days. It's then that you begin to experience wisdom. Now, there are two keys to this that this writer that Solomon says, one of them is you have to. You have to have wisdom that comes from generations before you. Listen to what he's saying here. He's speaking to his son. He's the father. But he's telling his son the wisdom of his father. There, in some ways, anybody who's still alive is only giving you a little bit of wisdom. Dead people are telling you proven wisdom. Come on, you got to think through that. 
In some ways, we have to be people that realize that there is a wisdom of the ages that is being made available to us. And we have to humble ourselves in such a way that we begin to say, I don't have to live on my own experience or my own authority, but I can live learning, reading, experiencing what others who went before me. I love to preach. I've always loved this, this format. I was 18 years old when I first started. I took my first pastorate. I became a, a solo pastor of a church when I was 24 years old. October 1983, 32 years ago. It's my anniversary, I guess. I was 24 years old. Now, listen to me. The church that they give you when you're 24 is a church they think you cannot hurt. <laughs> now, they can hurt you, but supposedly you can't hurt them because they're seasoned saints. So they were the, the people I was preaching to and teaching were 60s and 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds. And so they, they knew their theology. They knew their Bible all of these things. So they figure, you know, let the little preacher, and they called me the little preacher. And so I went into it. I do not like to fail. So I went into the situation and I said, Lord, how as a 24-year-old do I lead these seasoned saints? How do I, as a 24-year-old, preach in a way that somehow impacts their life? And that question alone was one of, one of the first statements of humility that I spoke as a, as a pastor and said, I do not know how to preach. I do not know how to teach. I do not have personal experience or authority that can lead these people. You know what he gave me? He gave me the sermons of Spurgeon. He gave me the sermons of Wesley. He gave me the sermons of George Whitfield. He gave me the sermons of Calvin. He gave me all of the ancient wisdom and I didn't speak out of my own authority. I spoke out of the authority of the wisdom of ages. And you know what happened? The church grew. The church began to attract young people. It began to attract families. There were only 100 people in the town, and we had 66 people on Sunday morning. We sat, on Wednesdays, we had 40 youth coming from all over the region. You know, and I, there was a part of me that said, man, I'm really good. Because I wasn't humbled yet. <laughs> but I look back on it now. One, it was the grace of God. But two, it was this very reality. Is that I realized I have nothing to say, but there is a lot to say. It can't be my words. It has to be words that are proven. The second thing that I learned that's in this passage that tells so much about wisdom and about getting wisdom and insight is this, is that he says over and over again, listen. You see, it's interesting that we don't teach much on listening. We teach a lot on speaking. We speak on vision. We speak on these different things. We don't speak on listening. One of my favorite writers of all time is a man by the name of Watchman Nee. And Watchman Nee speaks so clearly and beautifully and writes so wonderfully about the deeper life in Christ. 
One of his books is on how to be a minister of the gospel, how to be a servant of Christ. And you know what? The first chapter of the book is strictly on listening. And he says, you cannot serve Jesus if you cannot listen. You cannot serve people if you cannot listen. Every wife in here is going, are you hearing this? And he explains what it means to listen, because some of us listen to argue, not to hear. And he explains it, and it, and it transformed my young life as a minister. He says, when you listen, you listen to what people say, one. You listen to what they are not saying. See, that's how you get to know the person. And the third, you listen to what the Spirit has to say to that person. You want to practice that with me? Number one, listen to what they're saying. Listen to what they're not saying. And then listen to what the Spirit has to say. This will transform you as a man or a woman of wisdom. If you have heard the words that have been said to you, then you're actually saying, you matter to me. When you hear what they're not saying, then you're saying, I have wisdom for you. And when you hear what the Spirit says, now you have unlocked the secrets of their heart. But until we get good at that, we will not be wise. Are you with me? You hear me? Are you listening? Well, the second thing that Proverbs 4 teaches us about is it says, not only do you get this, but you have to keep going in it. And it's fascinating because everything is, everything is about this idea of path. In Proverbs 4.18, it says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. So the key metaphor in this whole second paragraph of Proverbs 4 is this idea of the way we we really, what Proverbs is saying, we face only two alternatives. Either you go down the wise way, the Jesus way, or you are on the evil, foolish, simple way. Wisdom is not an optional extra for life. Verse 13 says, wisdom is your life. Now, let me, let me explain what I mean by this. What most of us would like is to believe that there's this Super spiritual, super wise kind of way. And it's, it's over here, over to the side over here. And then there's this super evil, wicked, unrighteous way, and it's over there. And we're here in Switzerland. We're kind of in neutral. We're in this neutral way. You know, we're, we're, you know we respect those wise people. We go, ooh, wah, when they speak. You know, and we, we hate those evil, awful, wicked people. And, you know, we, we, we feel very self-satisfied that they're so disgusting and we're not. But we're, here we are. And we're, we're saying, this is my path. Here's the thing. The owner of the evil path likes to make you think you're not on it. He likes to deceive you into thinking... You're on your own path. You're doing fine. 
you know, you're not as bad as those guys. You're not as good as those guys, but nobody's as good. They're not even as good as they look. You're on your path. Now, there's a stupid commercial that illustrates this point really powerfully, okay? I think it's for one of those odor-hiding kind of products where you think it smells great in your basement. Anybody else walking in there goes, this smells like dog. You think your car smells lovely. Everybody else goes, your car smells like do wet dog hair. You're blissfully ignorant. Everybody else knows it doesn't, it doesn't smell good. See, the, the power of deception is you don't know you're deceived. And so why... Why is he pounding on this in chapter 4? Because he says, son, you can be drifting into the wrong path, not even knowing you're doing it unless you stay alert. Unless you know that there are only two paths. And you're either committed, submitted, yielded, and, and, and in the path of wisdom, or you are deceived and now in slavery to the path of unrighteousness, foolishness, and wickedness. There's, there's no other way, friends. There's no other way. You're either wise or a fool. You're either wise or you're simple. And so this isn't an optional exercise. Now, I love how he speaks in this because you can tell he still believes in the innocence of his son. Let me tell you why. Because he reveals so clearly the dangers of the other path. Look at what he says. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do you understand what he's, he's getting at here? He's saying, this is a trap. Now, now, you might say to me, okay, maybe you're overstating. If you're addicted to anything, it is hard to get out of it. If, you're a, if you begin to sample the illicit, it does something to the chemicals in your brain. So what is he saying to his innocent son, his son who hasn't yet sampled the illicit? He's saying, avoid it. Why? Because he knows what happens when you don't. Now, there are many people who say, oh, you need to experience everything. The older I get, I'm like, Lord, I wish I hadn't experienced that. I wish I hadn't gone down that path. Now, look what he says. Once you go down it, you do not go on. He says, turn away from it, pass on, for they who do go on it cannot sleep. Just get that one right away. In other words, something goes on in your brain. Now you can't calm down. You cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Your brain is incredibly complex. Something happens to you when you do something illicit that doesn't happen to you when you do something righteous. It works like this. I mean, it's a simple illustration, but your brain has so many pleasure hormones, only so many. Let's say, let's make the value just arbitrarily 100. Illicit things on the first pass will trick your brain into releasing more of those pleasure hormones. So the first time you hit cocaine, something like 90 out of 100. 
Pornography, very high up there. Even for many of us, the first rush of anger, when you first realize that you are powerful when your anger releases a lot of pleasure. When you, when you give yourself over to anxiety and you get adrenaline bump from anxiety, you get hooked. Some of us can't write a paper, can't take a test without anxiety. That's why we, we wait. <laughs> I remember people used to come up to me and say, have you started your paper? I says, is it, is it due tomorrow? Because you want, I wanted that bump. I wanted that. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Anything that is illicit, anything that's immoral, anything that is stolen, one time tricks your brain, never tricks it again. Every time after that, there are diminishing returns. So that you have to have more and more of that which hooks you in order to get even close to the feeling you once had. How do you know the difference between the path of wisdom and the path of foolishness? The path of wisdom gets brighter and brighter. The path of foolishness gets darker, harder, more addictive, more uh, limited returns for more and more of you. Are you hearing me? Now, so what do we do to get back from being lost. Well, here's what the scripture says. Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Your heart in the Bible is not merely your emotions. Your heart is actually, it's, it's the seat of all your truest commitments. It's the, it's the place where you treasure what you truly believe. It's the apparatus that works in you to tell you what you trust and what you don't trust. You can hide your heart from everybody else, but you cannot hide it from yourself. For example, when you are pressed, when you are pushed, something of your true heart will come out, and often you'll be, you'll be ashamed of it. In a fight with your husband or your wife, you'll say things, and you'll go, I didn't really mean that, or your parents or your children, and you'll say these things, and you'll, then you'll go, I didn't really, but why'd you say it? You said it because when you were pushed, that poison came out of your heart and until you begin to realize your heart has been holding on to settings that are poisonous you will not be wise you cannot be wise and only have behavior management you can only have heart renovation to be wise now look at what the heart is it's where you hold the beliefs about the things that you must have to receive life joyfully. Hear that again. Inside your heart, there is something that you have as a grid. There's a thing within you that maybe you're not even conscious of, but you've said, I will only have life joyfully if this happens. And so your heart is going after that, even if you don't know it fully. And here's, here's what the heart does. The heart chooses what the mind perceives and finds reasonable. The heart chooses what the emotions desire and find beautiful. The heart chooses what the will does and finds practical. See, your heart is the greatest expression of you. And if your heart is protecting, trusting something that is bitter, something that is poisonous, then what's going on in your heart is poisoning you. Some people say it this way, that bitterness and unforgiveness 
is allowing someone else to live rent-free in your heart who doesn't belong there. There's a, there's a writer who wrote a book called Women, Food, and God, Janine Roth. And here's what she said. She's not a believer, but she nails it. She says, women turn to food when they are not hungry because they are hungry for something they can't name. A connection to what is beyond the concerns of daily life, something deathless, something sacred, but replacing the hunger for divine connection with double-stuffed Oreos is like giving a glass of sand to a person dying of thirst. It creates more thirst, more panic. Now, I think if men are honest, it is not just men. Matter of fact, my favorite football team to watch is LSU. I, I have a connection from the time. My dad and I used to sit in front of the radio and listen to the football games, and it, it's a connection that I have. So I, when I can, I watch the games now on TV. But when I watch them, I get nervous. And when I get nervous, I want to soothe my nervousness. So I start stuffing my mouth. You know, I start stuffing my face. It doesn't help the football team win. <laughs> but I'm trying to soothe. Oh, are they going to win? Are they going to win? See, you only really get nervous. You only really start to have to be soothed if something matters to you. And so when you, see, when you see yourself getting nervous, you see yourself getting tense, when you see yourself getting anxious, all it's saying is that something really matters to you. But the question is, how will you feed your heart? Your heart was made for Jesus to feed it. He alone can meet that hunger. He alone can make, meet that thirst. Is there anything at all this morning that's appealing to you about your path getting brighter and brighter? Man, that's... Think about the lack of confusion, the lack of, of purposelessness, and beginning to say, I'm on a path that's getting brighter and brighter. Now, that's when you begin to realize the only one who can really guard my heart is Jesus. The only one I can really trust and commit myself to is Jesus alone. He took what you deserve so that you can receive what he deserves. Life abundantly. Will you stand with me? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you're offering, you're crying out, you're speaking to us as sons and daughters. You're saying there's a wisdom of the ages that can be ours right now. But even more than that, you're saying that you personally will fill those holes. You'll fill, the, you'll, you'll fill that hunger that we feel, that thirst that no one else and nothing else can satisfy. I just, I want to ask, I, I feel like some of you that today would be a day where you go, you know, I'm tired of not getting brighter and brighter. That I want the path I'm on, not, not to have one foot in the, in the foolish way and one in the wise way. I want both feet in the wise way. And sometimes it's just helpful to, to come and to speak to somebody and pray with them. So, I'll ask our elders and, and prayer ministers if they would just step up to the front. 
I believe the Lord is here to meet you and to send you on a path that you were meant to tread on. A path that will make sense to you. A path that you will say as life goes on, it gets brighter and brighter. Lord, we seal what you're doing today. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you come and pray with our prayer uh, ministers up here? Today can be a new day for you, a day of wisdom, a day of transformation. God bless you. We'll see you next week.